Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Jim Kuna, an SVP at the Boston Fed, who has focused on payments, technology, innovation and security during his 36-year career with the central bank. He's currently responsible for an industry collaboration effort to reduce fraud in payments in the United States and applied research into central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, including a joint technology research effort with MIT. Jim, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dominic. Pleasure to be here. Now, Jim, your background is is in payments, especially payments technology. We've seen uh, over quite a long period now, actually, non-bank big tech firms and fintechs entering the payments business, uh, effectively taking revenue and profit from banks, but not actually providing uh, bank-style services such as uh, deposit-taking and credit. So it's been a kind of transfer of value uh, within the payments industry, if you like. Now, do you think that is a stable division of labor between banks and innovative new payment service providers. Yeah, before I start, let me just say these are my thoughts and words, not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve System. Yeah, there's been a lot of evolution uh, over the the last couple of decades on who's providing payment services. I think it's important to differentiate payment services from say lending or other services that banks do. Uh, I wouldn't call it a division of labor per se because it's still only a fraction of the payments where we really start to worry is if the, the non-banks really are excluded from the payment system to a, a point where the, uh, non-banks are providing those services, then you, then you start to worry about various things. But if you think about who these players are, you know, the, the non-banks providing payment services are still under the same uh, set of regulatory regimes relative to uh, being called money transmitters, which means they have to follow KYC, anti-money laundering, et cetera. So at that level, there really is uh, a safety net for the, the uh, users and also for the network itself. So I think from that perspective, I'm not worried about the division of labor, you know, based on how it's currently defined. Uh, but, you know, if it went to a large scale, then we, try, we would be worrying about uh, the, the incumbents versus the new entrants. You know, as long as they're falling under the money transmitter laws, then, you know, it's usually a, a, a safe division. Now, another hot topic in payments in recent years has been faster payments. Now, the United States has been slower than some jurisdictions I can think of, including my own here in the United Kingdom, slower to embrace uh, faster payments. Uh, But back in 2019, a couple of years ago, the Federal Reserve did commit itself to the goal of of delivering real-time payments around the clock uh, in the FedNow program, it's called. Now, how is that project progressing? Uh, when's it going to happen? And, and what do you see as the of the cons of, of faster payment as opposed to the pros, which we hear so much about? Yeah, let me first address the timing. Uh, in most jurisdictions where they had faster payments before the US, including the UK, I think it was, it was the competition authority that regulated that the faster payment scheme needed to be created. In most jurisdictions, it's either regulatory or a threat of regulation that spurred the start of a faster payment system. In the US, we don't have that authority. There is no single payment regulator. So what the Fed did is try to work with the industry to get it to create the ubiquitous um, system for faster payments. We entered the market starting back in 2019 to de- determining that we didn't think it would be a ubiquitous uh, system without our presence. 
Uh, right now, we've recently announced that that system will be launched a year earlier than expected. So I believe the date is 2023. I know they're on track for that date. They've started some pilot efforts. And as far as the pros and cons, I see generally uh, faster is better, at least for things like person-to-person -person payments or payments that have to be just in time, like for hourly workers or gig workers. So there's plenty of opportunity for benefits there. If you look at, say, a payroll, which is known you know, well in advance and comes in batch form, you don't really need a faster payment scheme for that. Some of the, the bulk systems can work. And I really think as far as some of the risks, uh, I think any new entrant to a payment system does come with some risk of fraud because the fraudsters tend to go to the new things. Uh, I know the Fed and the Clearinghouse who runs the other payment systems are you know, really looking at fraud heavily. So I think we're working hard to try to mitigate that fraud risk, but I don't see really any others uh, on the horizon uh, relative to faster payments per se. I think it's mostly uh, benefits uh, that we see. Now, in a minute, I'm gonna ask you about CBDCs, but just before I do, are there links or even synergies between faster payments and central bank digital currencies or are these completely separate projects, initiatives, subjects? Well, they're both being done, at least the, the work we're doing with MIT, which I'm sure we'll get to, and the Fed now is being built by the Boston Fed uh, for the Federal Reserve System. So we do have some uh, cross-pollination of technology uh, people there. Uh, but as far as the platform themselves, you know, any new payment system is going to have some overlap with existing. You know, we're not creating brand new ways of doing it totally. So I do see there's some you know, potential uh, overlap of what a FedNow can do and what a CBDC can do. But we recognize that. If you've heard Chair Powell's comments, he recognized that we have to think deeply about that as to whether we uh, have overlap and to what extent. And my own boss, President Rosengren from the Boston Fed has elaborated on that as well. So the important thing is to understand what's the same, what's different, how do you maximize the benefits, uh, and then to extent possible, uh, make sure the synergies are exploited as well. Now, to deal with CBDCs directly, the United States has been surprisingly quiet about its research and development uh, in terms of CBDCs compared to some other jurisdictions. But you've obviously been, as the Federal Reserve, you've obviously been studying this. Now, what explains your relatively reticent approach and, and what have you actually been doing? Yeah, so uh, the Boston Fed specifically um, has started with wholesale CBDC experimentation back in 2016. And so we've been at this at the same time, as the same amount of time as the UK, as Singapore, Bank of Canada, who have been leaders in the wholesale side, uh, back in Japan and the ECB. So we started earlier. We did publish a paper on our website in the Boston Fed in 2018 about our experiments. Uh, so we've been at this for quite a while. Um, but I think part of it's the approach of the central bank of the U.S. You know, we tend not to be as vocal as some of the other jurisdictions have done with the work we're doing. And it's, I think it's a history of not wanting to unduly influence early markets. So I, we didn't want to early on try to you know, influence how things were evolving because we didn't want to get in the way of innovation. And so we were a little bit quieter about the work we were doing. Uh, and it was really so evolving. It was really such a new area. And most of the research was being done by central banks. Only when you got some of the, the larger players making uh, more strong plays in this area, I think you get more visibility. You know, we announced uh, most of our efforts back in 2020, but we've been at this for myself personally since the 90s, back when it was Mondex and others in e-money days. 
But the Fed has been looking at this very closely and working with, say, the Bank for International Settlement for, you know, for many, many years. We just tend to be a little quieter about our experimentation for just to, so we don't undo the market, unduly influence the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do tend to forget we've to some extent been here before with with e-money here as well as uh, as well as in the in the US. Now, you mentioned um, a minute or two ago that you've got this collaborative project on CBDCs in hand with with MIT. What are the objectives of that? projects and when do you expect to be able to share with us some results from that? Yeah, so this is joint technical research and specifically we're with a group called the DCI, the Digital Currency Initiative. They've been studying both cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin specifically, and CBDC for the last five years. And so it's joint technical research. What we're doing is jointly building and testing a hypothetical CBDC. So to put it in context, uh, many experiments have been done to, at a small scale to put some data on a blockchain or put some data in the network, call it money and play around with it. Um, but what's really hard is to do that at scale. So our goal is to really build a CBDC at scale to see if we can meet the unique needs of the United States. The first phase is the basic engine, the minting, storing and clearing of, of the funds at scale of performances of, you know, multiples of tens of thousands of transactions per second. So that's where it gets hard is doing it that scale, finality under five seconds, and then with certain resiliency of the platform and certain policy uh, privacy considerations. We're hoping to reduce, to um, publish that both in the joint research paper and also to create an open source license for code uh, in the summer, in the third quarter. So our goal is to share what we've learned with the rest of the world and actually have them contribute to the code. You know, some of the most um, important discoveries, say the internet itself is open source and you create a lot more value when you get many contributors. After that phase, we'll then go into more coding and testing of various policy options and design considerations. Now to be clear, we have no mandate to, to go to production and those policy decisions have not been made, but we're trying to understand what are the trade-offs and how can technology help? And the one we always use as an example is privacy versus traceability in order to catch the bad guys. Um, They're at odds because the more privacy you have, the harder it is to catch the bad guys. And the more information you have about the holder, the more you get into privacy considerations or worries. You have more PII to consider and more data and more programming will slow the system down. So our goal is both to see if we can do it at scale still, you know, tens of thousands of transactions per second after we add a new technology, but also can we help potentially solve some conflicts? Can we create with new technology something that is very private, and I don't use the term anonymous, but very private, but also you have the information to catch the bad guys and expose it to as few people as possible. I think privacy is one of those major areas that we still have to do more work on. So it's a multi-year effort. And like I said, our goal is to publish broadly what our results are and, you know, work from there. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been very clear about the trade-off between uh, privacy and, and traceability. You you also touched on uh, on scalability, the, you know, the transactions per second. Now, one of the obvious problems with the blockchain technology, which to some extent gave rise to this entire debate about, about CBDCs, is it does lack that speed and that scalability. Have you in that work with with MIT or indeed talking to anybody else, have you encountered effective solutions to that problem or is it just you can't use blockchain technology? Well, differentiate it. First of all, um, 
MIT has been doing work for many years. They've created something called the Lightning Network, which mm -hmm. is a way of trying to add a second layer onto Bitcoin to speed it up. We were not part of that, but that's some of the uh, evolution. The problem with blockchain is not just that it's a blockchain and, and it's distributed. It's really the proof of work that Bitcoin and Ethereum and some others use that slow it down and consume all the energy you've heard about. Yeah. So there are new technologies coming out on a regular basis. We still don't see anything that works at the same scale we would need, you know, many tens of thousands of transactions per second. And we're at this point, we're really agnostic. You know, we're not necessarily picking blockchain like some other central banks have done, and we're not excluding it. So we're trying to be agnostic and to go where the research takes us. Uh, so we are following it. We're looking, I mean, there's new blockchain technologies and new components. Uh, cryptographic solutions and uh, consensus methods that are coming out on a regular basis. So, you know, believe there's a chance that it'll get there, but we haven't seen that yet that can operate at our scale. And is it is it clear that, uh, talking of trade-offs, um, that the choice of technology is a second order matter if you need to get a CBDC into the market for whatever reason, um, you won't be constrained by, by technology or choose what works, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're actually looking at, you know, we believe we probably need something on the leading edge. And, and part of the reason is, you know, we're not building a CBDC just to be successful today or tomorrow. Like I said, we don't have the charge to go to production, but we want to build it like it, it's needed. And so we're looking at, you know, centuries. We're looking, you know, the current technology, the current CBDC has been or the money has been in place for over 100 years in the U.S., so it has to last for a long time. So we think some of those technology primitives are things that have not yet been built. But we're also looking at you know, existing technology, existing databases and networking, just to make sure we're really casting a wide net. I'll also mention the Boston Fed, separate from MIT, is also looking at um, a dozens of private sector actors that say they've built a platform that can meet our needs and all the open source variants of blockchain to see out of all of them, which ones rise to the top, will then take some of this in-house and do testing in our lab. So we are trying to look just beyond what we're doing with MIT and look at all existing and emerging platforms as well. Our, our goal is in a couple of years to be fully informed about what's possible and then where the gaps are. Well, it's a fast moving field. I'm, I'm impressed you can keep up with yeah. everything that's happening. Uh, yeah, um, I didn't say we're keeping up. <laughs> I see um, we're trying to. Yeah. Now, you, you also mentioned uh, a, a few minutes ago that you, we were talking about payments, the unique needs of the United States. And it's often said that every country does payments in its own way. And, I, and certainly the United States uh, does have some peculiarities, has a high use still of physical cash. It makes extensive use of, of checks. And of course, the US dollar has this uh, enormously, this exorbitant privilege, as it's called, of, of having a global role for its currency. Now, what what part of considerations like that, the unique, the unique position of the United States, both in terms of its payment practices and in terms of its global role, how, how have they affected the way that the Federal Reserve has responded to these new forms of payment and to digital currencies and to the CBDC opportunity? Well, I think for one thing, uh, like some other countries, say Sweden, where the, where the corona is barely in circulation and some developing countries, we don't really have a burning platform we're trying to solve for. We have very many uh, good payment systems out there. You could argue the summer, you know, not up to speed for the next hundred years. You can, you know, argue some over the other, but we have a very good complement of payment systems. 
and good you know, networking, et cetera. So I say one thing's different about us is we don't have a burning platform. That's solving for an immediate crisis. We also have to be very careful because as the you know, major world reserve currency and assuming there'd be some cross-border component of this, we have to be careful that you know, we're not doing something that has more you know, macro or financial stability concerns relative to it. So it means we have to be overly cautious. As Chair Powell says, it's not about being first, it's about being right. So all those things just tell us that we have to be on the leading edge, we have to be deep and thorough in our research, and we have to look at our current ecosystem. You know, cash is not in a vacuum, no payment system is. So you really have to take a systems view of what are we introducing if we do this, and what are the broad implications on many things. And as you mentioned, the World Reserve stature and our current uh, lay of currency options or payment options and just our regulatory and legal scale uh, realm say that those are the considerations they have taken into place. Now, you're researching this subject from every possible angle. I mean, CBDCs, you're, you're looking at the technology, you're, you're looking at the, you're looking at it systematically, trying to see what the system-wide effects are, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we're, we're promised this discussion paper on a US dollar CBDC this summer. Uh, the Fed is going to publish. Now, that paper is presumably going to discuss an awful lot of issues, uh, some of them uh, well known to, to you, like the possible impact on, on bank funding, um, the impact on payments, the opportunities it creates for, for monetary policy, you know, breaking the zero interest rate bound. Uh, and you've already touched upon questions like um, traceability and privacy. Then there's, we haven't talked about, about financial inclusion, you know, being able to basically wire money to uh, people outside the banking systems, telephones. Now, are any of those issues in your mind, and I don't know whether you've seen drafts of this paper or not, but any of those issues close to being settled in your perception or are they still open for discussion? As usual, Dominic, you pack, you, you, you pack a lot into a question. Um, Sorry, yeah. Oh, quite right, quite right. <laughs> it makes for a robust answer. Um, well, first of all, I think we have to separate the policy choices from the technology experimentation. So what we're doing with MIT is, is technology experimentation. Those policy choices on how we handle financial inclusion and some of the other you know, interest rates on CBDCs, they've not been set. So by, by principle, what we're doing is building a platform that is flexible to handle multiple different policy outcomes and changes to policy. So our paper is, is a technical set of results. And I don't think that in and of itself, we don't want in and of itself to be um, saying that it's leading any decisions on policy or leaning in any directions on policy. So we're building a platform that can handle any distribution model, direct or through banks or others uh, for various privacy options. So I don't think the paper itself will be controversial because it's flexible to the future. Uh, Chair Powell recently said that the Board of Governors will be uh, having a request for comment period over the summer to really get input on those important policy and design considerations from all walks of the industry and the public. So I think it's really the marrying of our research and, and our building of a system and the policy discussions and outcomes that come out of that that will really get into the, the end decisions. But I don't see our paper per se as being controversial more so than the actual topic of CBDC. I think it'll be a contribution because of the flexibility we've built into it. Okay, I'll try and ask one thing with this question. You mentioned going direct or going through the banks. Is it 
clear how the labor in a CBDC will be divided between the central bank and the commercial banks, or is that still open for discussion? Still open for discussion, totally. It is such a complex issue. And as I said, that's, I'm sure that's one of the questions that will come out of the request for comment is you know, the various pros and cons of various distribution models. Uh, some of the international papers that have been written have talked about a direct model, which is directly to citizens from a central bank, um, an intermediary model where you have, say, a bank as the intermediary, like cash is today, at least as far as its distribution, or other intermediaries, um, others that may be able to help with financial inclusion, uh, or even something more broad. So I think the, these are all options, and they're options on a spectrum uh, from the direct model to one where there's only one intermediary. And so I think it's really um, important to have those discussions to make sure we flesh out all the pros and cons and look for the many policy goals we may have from this and the unintended consequences. So they have not been set by a long shot. There is, of course, a reason banks exist, and that is to manufacture commercial bank money by, by making loans. Is that function going to have to survive however we design and implement a CBDC? Well, you know, there's been, a, you know, questions about whether a CBDC would create runs on banks. And when you have a run on a bank or a loss of deposits, you have the inability to loan as much. That's just fractional right. lending. So I think it's, it's a risk. How much of a risk and how we can potentially mitigate that, I think, is what we have to think about. You know, there's no goal here to, to replace cash, to replace banks functions, to, you know, have a big outflow of deposits to a CBDC. So the goal is to help mitigate that, not saying that there wouldn't be some, because if you're holding a CBDC versus money in your checking account, but the goal is to have that be you know, non-disruptive to financial stability or the safety and soundness of, of banks in general. So the goal is to mitigate that, but make sure we understand the risks and if necessary, design the CBDC in a way. You know, Some central banks talk about de minimis values of no more than say $500 in CBDC per wallet or per user. So there are ways of doing this, but there's also um, you know, deep thought we still have to put into this and the potential implications. Yeah, I guess there are mitigants, as you say, like the quantitative uh, ceilings and you could manipulate interest rates, I suppose, to, to direct what happened. But ultimately, I guess central banks would have to get into credit, into lending themselves directly if, you, if that risk was realized. Yeah, in the States, first of all, I'm a technology security guy, uh, you know, a payments per person, not a regulator or, mm -hmm. or legal, but I don't believe we have the authority to lend directly to citizens. We, can, we lend through banks as a, as a last deposit or in extreme measures like we've had during crises, we do have certain powers, but we do not have the power to loan to individuals, in my understanding. Yeah. Uh, and our goal is not to do that. So our goal is to not disrupt the current systems yeah. You mentioned before that there are other entrants that are coming in, you know, other entrants are, you know, part of any system, but the Fed's goal is not to either replace cash totally or even to displace any of the current incumbents. Well, as you say, your, your expertise lies in payments and uh, we often don't talk about, we rarely talk about the impact of, of CBDCs on payments. So how do you think a CBDC would affect, how could it in fact improve U.S. domestic payments system? Yeah, see the, um, well, first of all, one key difference is the CBDC is central bank money. It's a central bank liability. 
So it's not susceptible to any risks of a bank deposit. And obviously we have deposit insurance here in the States up to $250,000, but above that you're not insured. So there's one fundamental difference there. You know, I see one of the areas of potential greatest value is, is with financial inclusion. And we can go into more depth there. You know, but I also think there's other innovation that's going to happen. You, know, you mentioned faster payments a while back. I don't think we have a real clear picture on how much innovation can happen on top of a faster payment scheme or especially a CBDC scheme. You know, I think there'll be uses of this in the future that we won't even contemplate yet or be able to project. So, for instance, if a CBDC could be used for micropayments and you could pay five cents for that New York Times article or Internet of Things. So your refrigerator orders milk and it gets paid for through CBDC. I mean, those are some of the things that, you know, could come out of a CBDC with some unique intermediaries and innovation or even even banks. So I think there's so much opportunity there. Uh, I think there's room for improvement beyond what we know today. And, and are those improvements compatible with how the payment system works today? I mean, crudely speaking, you've got commercial banks netting uh, payments they owe to each other and then going into a real time gross settlement system operated by the central bank. As you say, it's central bank money. There's no risk of, of the payments not being made. Or do you have to build a whole CBDC RTGS system alongside the existing system? Or can these converge together so you have the old world and the new operating alongside each other? Or is that not clear yet? Well, it's not totally clear yet, but at least in the US, you know, our faster payment scheme, Fed now, will be a real-time growth settlement. So that will not be netting. Every transaction will be settled itself. So we're somewhat unique in that particular method. But you will need a new system for you know, managing the transactions. What's different is the CBDC being moved from person A to person B is like a $100 bill that I give you. It's settled when you get it. So we don't need clearing and settlement outside of the CBDC network itself because if you look at how Bitcoin works, if I change the public key of a Bitcoin from mine to yours, you own it. Uh, so there is not a separate settlement. The network itself settles by changing the mm -hmm. ownership. It's a, it's a, it's a central bank liability. So just by making the ownership name change or whatever uh, identity or credential you use, it's, it's already changed. So that's different about a CBDC. It's not a separate netting or a separate need to go outside of the network itself. It's settled when you move it, just like cash. So at least that's how we foresee it. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just mentioned that you're going to be doing the uh, Fed now is going to do real time gross settlement, like payment by payment. What sort of volumes are you looking at for that project? They must be massive. Um, I, actually, I, I can't quote what their volumes are. I know they're in the tens of thousands of transactions as a high watermark, mm -hmm. as potential. You know, I, it's not it's not a low volume system at all. And I think they've been doing research and building it. That part of the FedNow network, I'm not as connected with as far as just the general architecture. You know, but I do know they have very high throughput requirements that they're trying to meet for that reason, because they also believe, you know, FedNow is the first payment system that at least the Fed's built in 40 years. So it has to be built for, you know, for the future, not just for today. And they too are also looking at how can innovation help in the FedNow type of uh, person to person or business to person transactions. Um, grow in innovative ways and solve, solve needs we don't yet, you know, haven't, haven't identified yet. 
Now you mentioned financial inclusion, and I don't want to drop that. I'll come back to it in a minute. But just can we finish on payments? Because cross-border payments pose different problems from, from domestic payments. They're inherently more complex. They involve lots of intermediaries, lots of time zones, lots of legal jurisdictions, uh, lots of different regulations, lots of different market infrastructures, correspondent banks in particular. And as the BIS and others have been saying, they're a bit worried about correspondent banks withdrawing from, from the business, mainly for, for KYC reasons. So do you think CBDCs could make uh, massive improvements to the way in which cross-border, cross-currency payments are made? And the kind of thing I have in mind is, is these RTGS systems where we're talking about actually hooking up directly across borders, or do you still need correspondent banks to play a part in that? Could we get rid of correspondent banks altogether and just do RTGS to RTGS across borders or not? Well, in your litany of the challenges and the complexity um, of those, technology was barely one of them. So there's an awful lot of issues relative to cross-border. As you mentioned, the potential that a large correspondent would, would de-risk like they would in domestic markets by saying, I don't want to deal with the KYC ML implications. Um, so it's not just a technology. Uh, I do know through, you mentioned the BIS, through the BIS CPMI group, they do have, I think it's a 19 track research effort to think about all aspects of cross-border and to see whether it can be made more efficient and less opaque, less uh, costly, uh, less cumbersome. So it is a goal of the BIS to study that and see where inroads can be made. They have one track looking at CBDC. And I think the fact that we're all building them or at least researching them now gives us the opportunity to think about how do we do it right from the start? How do we do it either through you know, use of international standards like ISO 222 and new arrangements across central banks, uh, the new you know, clearing settlement types of infrastructures uh, like a revamped uh, CLS, Continuous League Settlement Network. I mean, there are different ways of trying to think about this. So it's not a simple yes or no but there are significant discussions going on to try to solve this. Because I think, I have a saying, as a saying in Boston, when you build roads, you shouldn't pave the cow paths because then you get Boston roads. So I think we shouldn't just do it the old fashioned way. And there's a lot of cow paths. One of the cow paths is how cross-border works today. And it's, it's, a, it's a long history. It's a complicated market. So I'm not knocking it for not trying, but I think CBDCs have an opportunity, but it's not a simple thing. No. Let's not mention the big dig in Boston. <laughs> um, now, financial inclusion, very simple question here. Do you think a CBDC could solve or at least mitigate seriously the problem of financial exclusion? Uh, yes. Uh, well, financial inclusion is another one of these uh, issues brought about by cowpaths. A lot of things are done today because they've always been done. So, yes, I think mm -hmm. there's a great opportunity for CBDCs to help with the unbanked, but or financial inclusion more, more broadly, because they're unbanked and they're underbanked and other issues. It's a huge problem. In my mind, it's, it should be a public good. It should be a public goal of ours, a policy goal to try to solve that. Now, there are different ways. Chairman Powell recently talked about, is there a way through free banking for all or some other methods? So it's not CBDC is the only answer. I personally believe that CBDC has great opportunity for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of people don't use banks for various reasons. It's not a homogenous group, but one of the reasons is of distrust or fees. So if banks are part of the distribution problem, distribution methods, then you, by definition, won't pick up the unbanked as is without some other change. And other thing is innovation. You know, I can, I can envision a situation today where, you know, a single mom 
who gets a paycheck, who, who has no bank account and goes to a check cashier and has exorbitant fees and buys money orders and does remittances overseas can instead get a CBDC through an intermediary, whatever the method is, and her landlord will trust the CBDC because it's central bank money, so no money order needed there, pay her electric bills, no more money orders, send money potentially overseas, and all that would have having to go to the check cashers and potentially other, other sources. So I think in that simple scenario, you can see the power that CBDC may have, and it's the innovation on top of the current players that a CBDC, I think, can, can help benefit. <laughs> Now, you've said more than once that it's important to get this right rather than to do this quickly. And we touched on the question of, of cross-border payments. Now, the Federal Reserve, along with some of the other major central banks, including the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Swiss, the Bank of Japan, and others, have all signed up to that uh, paper last year issued by the BIS called CBDC's Foundational Principles and Core Features, which of course addresses the question of how you um, arrive at a standard version, if you like, of a CBDC, which would clearly make it easier for different CBDCs to, to interoperate. Are you hopeful or confident that a, a kind of set of design and operating principles can be agreed so that uh, CBDCs can interoperate as effectively as, 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 as currencies do in the, in the world today? I mean, it's interesting that, that, that China was not a signatory, for example, to that to that set of uh, principles and, and, and core features. I, I mean, my, my question is a simple one, really. Are you, are you, are you confident that we can arrive at uh, a design which is universal? I think it's a start. I think it's the right way to start, which is there's three principles in that first paper. One is do no harm. And do no harm doesn't mean no negative impact. It really means for the, the monetary policy mission we all have and for financial stability. So these are big do no harms, um, not just create competition. One of them is innovation. One of them is to foster innovation in the network. And the other is to make sure that we interoperate with the existing systems and don't displace you know, private and public monies. So those are really important ways of starting because we don't want to break things. You know? So I think those are a good way to start. You know, the, the same central banks are continuing discussions on how to go a little deeper into the thought process here. And as you mentioned before, through the BIS and through other IMF, World Economic Forum, there are a number of serious efforts internationally to uh, look at this. And I do think uh, some of the BIS innovation hub work, I do think this is the best way of going about it. Collaboration, new research and starting with core principles and not just everybody building something and going from there. I can't speak to China. Um, they'll have to speak for themselves as far as, you know, whether they agree with the goals or the principles. Yeah, well, we're watching carefully what they're doing, as, I, as I'm sure Absolutely. you are. Um, uh, now, one aspect of, of CBDCs which tends to get forgotten about is, uh, you know, we talk about cryptocurrencies a lot, but we don't talk that much about, about stable coins. And these stable coins were, of course, invented um, to facilitate on-chain payments pending the arrival of an on-chain fiat currency in the form of a, a CBDC. Now, a stablecoin is, is, is it's not a claim on a central bank. It can't be converted into physical cash, unlike um, fiat currencies today. It can't be held in a you know, conventional bank account. Do you see stablecoins as like a temporary solution to a payments problem pending the arrival of CBDCs? Or do you think they have a future separate from CBDCs or complementary to CBDCs? 
Will stablecoins survive, I suppose, is my question once we have CBDCs. Yeah, very complicated. First of all, there are different types of stablecoins, so it's important to differentiate. Some are back, it's such a new area. I think it's premature to say one way or another how they'll survive, but uh, some are backed by US dollars, so obviously they're more stable. Some by liquid assets or baskets of currencies, some by cryptocurrencies themselves, some by algorithm. So each one of them comes with its own set of risks and potential uh, uses. Uh, most of the work today in stable coins is not in the retail space. So a CBDC, at least the one we're talking about is a retail CBDC. So there's not much use, there's not much there from the stable coins. And they use, they're using the crypto market for onboarding and offboarding crypto. So that's more of a wholesale play. The uh, private network called Finality, which is a number of banks that are, clear, that are setting a private stablecoin specifically to be able to, to pay for assets on chains is a whole different model. So CBDC would not have an impact on that per se. So that's here I'm separating wholesale from, from retail. The other uh, big named one is obviously Facebook's DM, formerly Libra, yes. so that not yet launched, but you know there'd be some direct competition there relative to a CBDC versus a Facebook, but we're still early on in uh, these areas. So, and our goal is not to eliminate them. So, and there'll be there's innovation there. So I would I would say there's still that has to play out and really see what the what the uses are, the benefits, and what the risks are. They are getting more. Um, interest from regulators around the world, especially if they get to a systemically important level uh, like Finality could if it went to scale. So those, those are important factors that will evolve, but it's too early to sell. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought up the question of, of DM or, or, or Libra as it was, because it is possible to conceive a situation in which large technology companies or technology platforms like Facebook uh, start to issue stable coins of, of various kinds and that they could um, program into those uh, those coins functionality, which is superior to existing forms of, of commercial bank money. Uh, and so you start to attract very large numbers of users. Are, is it clear yet whether the risks of that happening outweigh the innovation to which you've, you've just referred? Are we at a point now where we need to think seriously about large-scale stable coins issued by big tech companies as being a potentially systemic threat to global financial stability? Or is it just too soon to say? I think it's too soon to say. Uh, as you said, nothing exists at any scale at this point, but it is getting serious attention from regulators. I mean, DM's an interesting case. They've changed their model along the way. They've proven encouragement that, from regulators, I assume. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, they've proven that innovation happens in the private sector sometimes in, in, in interesting ways, in ways that weren't predicted. But even though these companies have all been looking at coins and other ways of doing it for, for a decade at least. So I think it shows the innovation is there. Um, they underestimated the regulatory and the know your customer and others. So I think it's very complicated markets. So you don't just make a coin and suddenly you're in. You are, as I said before, usually regulated as a money transmitter. So you have to you know, think deeply about know your customer and anti-money laundering. So it's not simple. So it'll take time. Um, you know, the other aspect of this is it's not necessarily a single entrant or competition in stable coins that creates a systemic risk per se. But if they crowd out existing players, if they crowd out central bank monies, that's where you start to worry about systemic risk. 
and other other matters when they get scaled. So in and of themselves, I don't see them as a risk, and there may be some niche usage or some larger scale misses, but it's too soon to tell. Um, but it's 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 really the macro view that uh, needs to be watched generally outside of the regulations that has that has to do with just protecting the end consumers and, and the money laundering. Um, you mentioned crowding out central bank money. I was actually concerned about them crowding out commercial bank money. You know, if you have a stable coin which is backed by a pile of dollars or or backed by high quality liquid assets, um, it could be another factor which deprives banks of funding and therefore reduces the supply of credit. Um, is that a concern which you are starting to worry about? Yeah, I think similar to a CBDC, I think the real issue is, is there a run on bank deposits that then impact the, mm -hmm. the solvency of those institutions and or their ability to lend, which has broader implications. And so I think you have to look at, you know, how well regulated is the competitor? So first, you have, you have, there's many aspects of this. You have to look at the consumer and the protection of the consumer and how, how is their money protected? Then you look more broadly at, you know, at the markets and at the systemic, potential systemic implications. Like I said, I'm not a, an economist or a regulator, but you know, I do know that it's more the scale that becomes an issue. And then you know, what regulatory um, steps might you take, what legal steps might you take? See, part of the question too is it, forgetting cryptocurrencies or stable coins or other actors, part of it gets into you know, private actors having that much control over the market. And I'll go back to the history of the Fed in the 19, late 19th century, you know, banks issued their own paper currencies, municipalities did, towns uh, issued their own paper currency. And part of the challenge was if you were in Boston and had a note that came from a Chicago bank, you didn't trust it. You would not take it at par. You may give 80 cents for a dollar. So when you have all these private actors playing the roles of, of these uh, uh, serious and important economic players, uh, you, you sometimes have risk be because of the scale. And so the Federal Reserve was created to create a national currency to get rid of the private currencies and also to create a national network for clearing checks because checks weren't clearing apart. So like I said, I'm not an expert in this area, but you can see where suddenly one currency may not trade at par, even if it's a stable coin that, that, that's possible based on different risk, risk profiles. And if there's uh, worries about one stable coin versus another, might that change the value of it? I think those are all big, big, big questions. So it's not a one-off question. It's really the, the modern macro, macro view that we have to think about, which is, which is really challenging. You brought this up earlier when you re referred to the fact that the new entrants into the payments business are under the under the same level of regulation as the as the banks when it comes to to making payments, money transmission. Um, so this may be a non-question, but if we envisage a future in which banks um, are either playing a much reduced role or they're knocked out of the business um, altogether, does that mean that the important work of keeping bad actors out of the financial system, all that work they do on know your client, anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism, sanction screening, all that stuff, who would, who would do their, that work in a system where, where the banks were not involved? Because it's expensive. Yeah, let me clarify, yeah, let me clarify one thing first. Um, my main, once again, if people are relying on this for uh, regulatory uh, uh, advice, <laughs> I was really talking about the, the specifically the movement of money where the regulations for KYC and AML specifically uh, would be would be the same for a bank versus you know say a PayPal 
Um, it doesn't mean all regulations around that bank is the same as PayPal when it comes to you know, some of the capital requirements, et cetera. So there's very difference there, but it's really more of the money movement that I was talking about. Um, yeah, so today the banks do the KYC and the AML, uh, but non-banks do as well. So PayPal has certain obligations because they're a money transmitter. Uh, even crypto uh, exchanges in the US uh, I generally call money transmitters and have to do know your customer and anti-money laundering, uh, et cetera. So you can envision a world where new entrants, if there are going to be intermediaries outside of the current scheme, uh, which touch CBDC, uh, they would likely still have to do KYC and, and AML for the same reasons, because of that FinCEN designation as money transmitters. But I also think it's important um, to think about what else is possible. Like I said, with new technology, can we think about ways of enhancing the privacy and still doing the KYC and AML through other means? And I don't have a particular solution, but you know, what we do today is really expensive. I thought I heard a figure in a recent panel that there's something like 20,000 people work in the compliance areas of banks in the US and the whole process of uh, creating the, the activity report, the suspicious activity report is challenging to get that right. Uh, it's just hard. So might there be different ways of thinking about this in the future? I try to think about the question that way as opposed to who's doing it per se. But in my understanding, at least at any certain dollar value will be done. I think um, I don't think they see that changing dramatically at, at higher values. You, you say you haven't got a solution to the to the cost of, of the KYC AML tests. And as you say, they're very it's a very heavy burden it's tens of billions of dollars if you look at the industry around the world and i must ask you this question because we're big fans of this at, uh, at future of finance have you looked at digital identities as a solution to that transaction cost levied on the payments and banking industry yeah once again very complicated question uh, i would say and this, we don't position this as the fed but i would say if there was a digital identity in the u.s for financial services it would make the job of creating a cbdc easier and I'm sure many uh, other, other factors, uh, but it's really complex. I mean, even if you think about digital identity in the US, you've got financial services, you've got healthcare, you've got critical infrastructure, you've got military, you've got so many different ways of thinking about an identity and what it would take to get there. You know, I, I, my own personal view, I'll say it again, is you know, identity in the US is broken. You know, my other job is helping to reduce fraud. We have way too much um, reliance on social security numbers and personal identified information that's been hacked. So I, so I personally think a digital identity would make it simpler, but it's a complex question. So yes. I guess I could just leave it at that. Can I, can I make the, the question slightly more complex? This is the last question I'll ask you, but it, it is a, it's one with many dimensions to it, which is that if you assume that digital identity is just one set of data which consumers and companies own and control about themselves. And they, they allow, if they want to open a bank account, they allow the bank to see this set of data. If they want to get a passport, they allow the passport office to see this set of data and so on. Do you, do you think we are evolving towards a world in which uh, an open data world, if you like, in which consumers and, and companies own and control their own data and use that to, to buy goods and services without compromising their privacy. And if I can just make the question slightly more complicated, I think it's become a become increasingly clear to me that maybe we're moving away from a world of these centralized platforms, you know, the world of, of uh, if you like, of, of um, Facebook and, and Google and Uber and so on. This is the promise of blockchain 
that is a kind of highly distributed network of networks. And what's what's enabling that network of networks to, to work seamlessly without compromising people's privacy or their data being sold to third parties is this open data, consumer-owned, company-owned data. And so there you decide who gets to find out about you for what for what purpose. And the whole economy starts to run on these distributed networks. I'm interested in your opinion on that, but to narrow the question down to a particular thing, I'd be very interested to know whether you think as a central banker, that system would be more stable, financially stable, than the present system we have with highly centralized points of failure in it. Well, if I answer all those, you owe me a pint. So let me think here. Uh, <laughs> I think I do. That was an incredibly long question. I do apologize for it. <laughs> yeah, so once again, this is my views. We don't have a Fed position on this because it's going way beyond this financial services. Um, I wouldn't really conclude that it would be more stable. You know, I have, you know, we're creating open source software. You know, I get the passion for payments and technology and money and more open ways coming, you know, back in the nineties, but I don't think we've proven that it's more stable. You know, Bitcoin is still, you know, what, 12 years old now and still not used for purchases. Uh, DeFi is not as new and has promised, but many risks. I just don't think we have enough data to be able to say what the right end solution is. It's so complicated when you get to, trust and the risk of some of the, you know, I'd say open is generally better. I'd say controlling your own identity is a principle that makes a lot of sense to me and only exposing data needed to who's needed to. I think we have principles that many of us can agree to, but I don't think we necessarily have solutions and haven't solved for some of the unintended consequences that come with this. So I wouldn't say stable, because go back, like I said, if we had all open architectures in non-central bank and non-central systems, is the, is the experience of you know, having 100 different paper currencies in the US informative? Does it show you what can go wrong when you have a lot of private or more open source issues? I mean, the internet is a raving success. The World Wide Web is, is changing the world and has changed the world and will continue to. But that's the highway system. That doesn't necessarily mean that everything has to be open and non-managed. I think there's still um, risk to the world if we don't have if we if we do that in this systemic risk, or there's actors or bad actors or nation states, rogue nation states. I just don't think we know enough and have enough of the solutions in place to really make that statement. I think it's aspirational, but you know, as far as more open and more, you know, less need for control and you know, data tied up in, in all these places, but I, I can't see whether it's, whether it's better or not. I think it's just a, a, a direction. Okay, thanks so much. It's been a really fascinating discussion and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Dominic, thanks. <laughs>